Welcome to the podcast series of the Journal of Neurophysiology. And uh, my name is Nino Ramirez. I'm the new editor-in-chief of the journal. And uh, today we'll talk really about uh, plateau potentials and their implications. And uh, this podcast today is really inspired by a fantastic work done by Monica Gorassini and her team. And it is entitled Estimation of Self-Sustained Activity Produced by Persistent Invert Currents Using Firing Rate Profiles of Multiple Motor Units in Humans. And Monica, I was really inspired to, to use this as my first podcast, actually, because the question how synaptic and intrinsic membrane properties work together is the key for understanding not only motor control, but really how the brain uh, processes information. So, so Monica, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit how you tackled this really humongous task. Thanks, Nino. Uh, really honored to, that you chose me to be in your first podcast. I'm Monica Gorsini from the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Uh, essentially, I tackled this project by having a really great postdoc at the back of Sharapur and buying lots of really fast computers. Uh, the reason why this paper came out was that we needed a method to record from a whole bunch of motor units, but in a non-invasive way, so that we can look at how spinal motor neurons are affected in children with cerebral palsy. This is a project with Kathy Quinlan from the University of Rhode Island, and we couldn't use traditional methods of intramuscular needle EMG to record single motor unit activity in, in the kids. So as a first step, we needed a method to uh, develop uh, and measure intrinsic motor neuron properties from the multiple motor units we're able to decompose using high-density surface EMG techniques in adult subjects uh, in this paper. So Monica, for me, the daunting task is, of course, as you said, you know, you cannot manipulate a human. You cannot just stimulate electrically uh, units, etc. And so how, how did you go about understanding what is really intrinsic and basically this persistent inward current versus the synaptic drive of these motor neurons? Well, in order to measure the contribution of intrinsic currents uh, that are activating the motor neuron, you really need a good measure of what the synaptic inputs are. And based on intracellular recordings in motor neurons, the firing frequency response of a motor neuron is a really nice indicator of its intrinsic uh, synaptic inputs, especially in the low threshold motor neurons where they have a nice linear range and firing rate with respect to their inputs. And this is something you can you know, kind of get a, a good sense of when you listen to motor unit discharge as you make a voluntary contraction. So the firing rate is very responsive to your level of effort and presumably descending synaptic drive. And this is why I always like to do experiments with both my ears and my eyes to figure out you know, how motor neuron is uh, responding to uh, during a contraction. So once you know what the extrinsic synaptic input is to the motor neuron, any discharge and firing that is in excess of that can be attributed to intrinsic activation of the motor neuron which helps to both amplify and prolong synaptic inputs uh, to the motor neuron. So Monica, I love your response because I tell you, I totally rely also on, on hearing. And, uh, and we always, you know, if you're in the lab, you always turn on the, the loudspeaker and you can tell how close you are to a neuron. You can tell whether it's a pacemaker, whether it's like a follow on neuron. And, 
And so I always encourage my students to turn on the loudspeaker and, and you can imagine how noisy it is in the lab. And I can imagine <laughs> how noisy it is in your lab. It was funny. I uh, once got good at uh, identifying a 1A afferent from uh, a 1B or group 2 afferent just by listening to them uh, over the loudspeaker. Yeah, and the gamma fibers are like just incredible, correct? When they come in and, and, and kick in. And I think this is really fascinating. And I, I have sometimes a suspicion the reason I'm still in neuroscience is because I'm so fascinated by, by these sounds that these neurons make. And, and you get a feeling of how the brain really works. So you find basically that these motor neurons are recruited over a wide range of forces and they all exhibit evidence of these inward currents that assist their firing. Now, we know from all the studies in vertebrates and vertebrates that they are target of neuromodulation. So do you think that basically these inward currents play a big role in, in transferring like state dependency on these motor neurons? Let's say you're you're tired and your posture changes. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, neuromodulation by serotonin, noradrenaline, acetylcholine, you know, just to name a few neuromodulators, um, they can really change the gain or state of the motor neuron to make them more or less responsive to synaptic inputs. And it's not just in postural muscles, since you know these persistent inward currents are also activated in flexor muscles, upper limb muscles. Um, but I think the interesting thing about neuromodulation is what happens after injury to the brain or spinal cord, where descending pathways that carry these, not, these neuromodulators to the spinal cord is altered. You know, for example, in spinal cord injury, where you can lose a lot of your descending serotonin, the serotonin receptors on the motor neuron adapt and now become active on their own without the need for uh, the ligand binding to it. And this makes the motor neurons uh, re-excitable after spinal shock and contributes to uh, the development of spasticity. Now, on the other hand, after injury to the brain during development, like what happens in cerebral palsy, you end up with an excessive amount of serotonin in the spinal cord. And so now we're looking at how this affects the neuromodulation of the motor neurons and the problems that people with cerebral palsy have with um, motor movements. Monica, you talk about cerebral palsy, and one of the problems there is that, you know, you have asymmetries in the connectivity that then causes asymmetries also in the left-right coordination, etc. So you think that these intrinsic membrane properties could play a role in compensating for these asymmetries, or do you think that actually they can worsen the situation? How do you see this in this context of this important clinical issue? Yeah, it's a really great question. Uh, motor neurons on the affected side uh, have less descending pathways to activate them, but then they may have lots of neuromodulators to make them more responsive to these weaker inputs. So that's the, you know, the compensation that might be happening, and that's what we need to uh, take a look at. But then you also have intact sensory pathways that might then overactivate these motor neurons or activate them at the wrong time, um, so that you have not very good motor control and things like uh, spasticity um, in, in these uh, kids with cerebral palsy. Now, you found that you've, you have these properties kind of everywhere. In the smaller units, you have them in the larger units. So how do you think that the brain can then differentially control these properties? Yeah, for sure. Uh, small and large motor neurons have different intrinsic properties that help descending inputs to best activate them. 
work from C.J. Heckman's lab has shown some, some of this. Now, the different intrinsic properties may come from differences in the channels themselves or as a result of the different architecture of the motor neurons. So the size of the cell body and the dendrites and, and the distribution of the ion channels may make the small motor neurons better able to fire for long periods of time at low forces, and the larger motor neurons better able to fire at high rates to produce a short but powerful contraction. But interestingly, in our paper, we estimated that the persistent inward currents were actually of similar size in the small and in the larger motor neurons, which was kind of surprising to us. However, with motor unit recordings, we can only estimate these currents when the motor neuron is actually firing and not during subthreshold activation. So this finding might stimulate some neuronal modeling uh, to understand how size and channel distribution might affect the activation properties of both the sodium and calcium persistent inward currents and how this uh, then affects the response of the motor neuron to uh, inputs from the brain. Absolutely. You know, and, and of course, in the human, you couldn't say, is it a persistent sodium current versus a persistent calcium current? But do you think they have different roles? Although the sodium and calcium persistent inward currents both amplify synaptic inputs, the sodium persistent inward current will inactivate much quicker, within a couple of seconds. So it's more important in shorter contractions, but also important in maintaining repetitive discharge to um, kind of help boost the membrane potential out of the uh, after hyperpolarization. Now, the calcium PIC appears to be more involved in contributing to the firing hysteresis of the motor neuron. So it helps the motor neuron to fire for long periods of time uh, at low synaptic inputs um, and at inputs that are much lower than uh, was initially re required to recruit the motor neuron. Do, do you think that uh, the ratio between persistent sodium versus calcium currents can change in disease? Yes, after spinal cord injury and stroke, it seems that there is a stronger activation of the sodium PIC that drives involuntary motor neuron firing. You often get spontaneous low-frequency discharge of motor units that resembles motor neuron discharge that is driven by a regenerative, oscillating type of activation of the sodium PIC that Dave Bennett has recorded in rat motor neurons of chronically injured animals. With respect to the calcium persistent inward current, we think that it might also adapt as part of a neuroprotective response. One thing we noticed in the paper was that the firing rate of the motor neurons during the relaxation phase of the contraction decreased more than what you would predict from the decrease in synaptic drive. One possibility is that this enhanced decrease in firing rate might be due to inactivation of the calcium PIC to help protect the motor neuron from too much calcium entry into the cell. So a stronger calcium PIC inactivation might be a neuroprotective response to too much excitation, which be uh, you know really important in cases like ALS. Or uh, another possibility is that after injury or disease, there might be an upregulation in calcium-activated potassium currents to help clamp the motor neuron activation as another protective mechanism which would be really interesting to study in uh, vulnerable motor neurons in ALS. I think this is a, a very important point because you measure the inward current, but the amount of inward current you get is really 
the result of a balance of inward and outward currents. And really what you see could be a problem with the outward current balance versus the inward current balance. Also, you talked about refractory periods, you know, basically you inactivate and to what extent can this gain be regulated by these properties and play a role in fast movements as opposed to postural movements? Well, the sodium persistent inward currents can activate fast enough to help fast activation of the motor neuron during walking. Rob Brownstone showed nicely how persistent inward currents help boost recruitment of the motor neurons during fast locomotor inputs to securely activate the motor neuron in each step. So you really don't want to have an insecure activation of your motor neuron during walking, otherwise you might trip and fall. With uh, respect to the slower activating calcium currents, Mark Binder has shown that they have a type of activity-dependent warm-up that makes them activate much quicker during short, repetitive movements and remain primed over a long time to facilitate the activation of the motor neuron. So you can have this tonic prime state with a uh, superimposed fast synaptic drive to help with uh, these fast movements. Do you have an idea whether uh, you know, some of these uh, window currents play a role? For example, you, know, you have the T-type calcium current that, that is actually inactivates very quickly. And I think people have shown that in diseases, often T-type currents are upregulated. Do you think they could be also contributor to these inward currents that you characterize? And uh, to what extent can we assess this in, in animal models? Yeah, I'm not too sure about uh, T-currents in um, adult spinal motor neurons. I don't think they play a, a huge role. The majority of currents that I study in human uh, comes from the currents that are studied in uh, animal models. So data from Dave Bennett, C.J. Heckman, Hans Holtborn, looking at you know those currents that play a larger predominant role in the behavior of the motor neurons. So these calcium PICs and sodium PICs. And uh, now we're trying to look at what the... Um, functional role or potential consequences of these uh, potassium currents are in human motor neuron behavior. Yeah, Monica, I have to say that that was also one reason I wanted to have this podcast is because this is a beautiful example of bench to bedside, you know, where, where you use bench work on the animal model to translate into the human and then get inspired by the human side and go back to the, to the animal model. And yeah, I really love what you did in combination, you know, with Dave Bennett and, and his people. As I said, when I look at your analysis, I, you know, I get nightmares. It's, it's, it's complicated and, and complex. And how did you tackle this? Do you have some computational neuroscientists in your team or? Oh yeah, had lots of computational help on this one. Uh, as I mentioned before, have a really great postdoc, Babak Afsharpur, who did lots of the uh, MATLAB programs to um, calculate everything analyze the data. And of course, the uh, decomposition algorithm uh, was written by Francesco Negro, who, um, you know, allowed us to uh, extract the multiple single motor units from the uh, surface EMG recording. And this really opens up a huge uh, opportunity to look at motor neuron behavior uh, non-invasively with surface EMG. Um, we were able to, you know, look at the activity of about 20 or so motor neurons. So, you know, about 10 to 20% of the whole motor neuron pool we can look at 
uh, during natural motor behavior. So with these really interesting um, and phenomenal methods uh, to extract single motor activity, it's really allowing us to uh, move forward and to take a look at um, motor neuron behavior in real time in, in humans during uh, natural behaviors. So Monica, what's the next steps with your project? Do you look at state dependency? Do you want to go into patients or where do you want to take it from here? Well, following uh, this work in adults, we now want to look at the development of these intrinsic currents in typically developing children. Since there are some known differences in motor unit firing behavior in children, and then compare this to children with cerebral palsy to see if we can explain some of the motor dysfunction and spasticity observed there. We're also planning to look at motor neurons in patients with ALS, especially in affected compared to the non-affected muscles, to see if there are differences in rate saturation, this lowering uh, than expected reduction of firing rates we talked about earlier as a measure of neuroprotection. This way we can see, um, you know, if there's any adaptive responses to uh, the um, ALS injury or whether or not the ALS injury is, you know, making these motor neurons less responsive to uh, synaptic inputs. So, uh, Monica, as a PI, I know that you have to write tons of grants, you have to write the papers, and you have to be involved in the analysis. How do you balance your activities in the lab and be still active in the lab and how important is this for you to be part of these experiments and listening to the firing of these neurons? Yeah, I'm really involved in participating in, you know, most of the experiments that are happening in, in the lab because I really like to see the data as it comes in and to really learn from the data um, during the experiment. And maybe that's why I don't write a ton of papers and I'm too busy being in the lab. But, um, you know, I, I think it's a real important aspect of um, getting where you get your ideas from. Uh, with human electrophysiology, you can learn a lot of things online during the experiment. And, um, you know, it's still a lot of fun for me to uh, be in the lab. The only downside to all of that is uh, I just drive my grad students crazy because I'm forever changing the uh, protocol on the fly. So it kind of drives everybody nuts. No, I have the same experience. My people are scared if I go to the lab and get unexpected results. But I tell you, I mean, to me, unexpected and unplanned results are always the driver of science. And I think your, your study is a good example of that because I think you expected sometimes different results given the animal work. So I, I was very excited to see that in your paper. Yeah, that's why uh, figure one, which was our predicted results of the animal data um, was different than figure 11, which was the actual data we got from uh, the human recording. So yeah, that was kind of fun to uh, see. <laughs> Good thing. So everybody who hears the podcast should read the paper and, and get more insights into this. So Monica, thank you so much for this wonderful podcast. I was very, very uh, insightful and I learned more about invert currents and their importance and how plateau potentials play a big role, not only to control the pyloric rhythm in the stomatogastric ganglion, but actually also our human activities and why this is incredibly important clinically also. So I hope a lot of new generation scientists can learn from how you run your lab and be inspired to be scientists. So Monica, thanks so much and uh, 
all the best also to Dave. I know he played a big role in, in the execution of these experiments. Yeah, thanks, Nino. I had a really great time talking to you. Take care. Thanks so much. Okay.